This is Couch Kicker, a podcast about pushing further, trying new things, and finding inspiration. I'm your host, Jan. Hello. Welcome back, Couch Kickers, and to new listeners, how are you doing? Last episode, I gave some uh, shout-outs to our international audience, and I actually got a message to ask why I'd missed some countries out. So, very specifically, to the one solitary listener that we have in Sweden. Hello. Butchered the pronunciation there, no doubt. Uh, By the way, that's not going to be a regular feature. I'm not that good with languages. And quite frankly, if you do want to learn how to say hello in the various languages of countries where people happen to listen to this podcast, then, you know, go and get yourself a phrase book or download Duolingo. Not a sponsor, other language apps are available. Uh, listen, it's not even spring, but it does like feel like we've got some kind of fresh shoots of optimism blossoming. You know, here in the UK, we've got this roadmap out of lockdown that's been announced. And I'm not sure how confident I am that the exact dates are going to be met, but at least it's a sign that at some point this year, things are going to start to relax. We're going to be able to get back out, you know, back into the gyms, back at the sporting events, back at the pubs and the gigs and the live events, and generally, you know, back to some kind of sense of normal, whatever that normal will look like. It's going to feel weird, though, and I think for many people, it it will be weird. You know, we've got used to living as we have for the past year, and I can see there being a bit of a split, you know, between people who are just champing at the bit to get back out there and others who feel a sense of nervousness that this is too soon. Um, And I think, you know, a healthy attitude might be somewhere in the middle, you know, like it's going to be normal, but there's an asterisk after that word and some small print underneath. But regardless, and, and however you feel about things opening up, I think what we can all agree on is that it's got to, and it's going to happen. And that is only going to be a good thing. Um, personally, I'm, I'm volunteering on the vaccine program, helping to you know get that shot into people's arms. I, I say volunteering, what I mean is I've done my training and I'm waiting to get called up. But either way, I'm looking forward to that. And for something like this, this you know this big one-off challenge, I just thought you know why not get involved, you know. And I think if anyone in the UK is listening in the UK does want to give up a bit of time to help out, check out the St John's Ambulance. Uh, volunteer program. I'm, I'm sure they still want plenty of people to come and help uh, get that shot into people's arms across the country. And speaking of shots in the arm, if you enjoy this podcast, then why not give us a shot in the metaphorical arm and hit the subscribe button on the podcast app of your choice. Or if you feel so inclined, give the podcast a like and a follow at Couch Kicker Pod on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, and little secret for you, if you subscribe and also like and follow on social media in the correct combination, in the correct cycle of the moon, you will actually awaken a long, dormant, and benevolent ancient spirit who will act as a guardian angel for you and help ensure you get a USB stick in the right way up. First time, every time. Now look, it's a very specific kind of blessing, but a useful one nonetheless. Plus, A subscribe and a like does help me grow the podcast. Thank you very much. 
And so on to today's guest. Uh, Barney Farmer is a writer, raconteur, pessimist, skeptic, and aspirant public scourge from the northwest of England. His work has featured in the pages of Viz magazine for two decades. He's published two novels with a third one on the way later this year, plus a stage adaptation of his first novel, Drunken Baker, is in the works. For me, Viz magazine has shaped my sense of humor uh, more than, than I think anything else. And I've been a big fan of Barney's writing for a while. Um, and before we get started, I just need to confess, I messed up big time with this one. Uh, we started the interview and we'd spent about 20 minutes going at it, talking about Lord knows what, before I realized that I hadn't pressed record. I know, I know schoolboy stuff. So th this interview kind of just jumps right in, uh, right after that horrible realization. And Barney's sharing a story where he did a podcast with Robin Ince and Alan Moore and the record button wasn't pushed then. So of course I feel daft for making such a rookie error, but at least I'm in esteemed company uh, having made it. So here we go, we're gonna dive in midway through. Here's today's guest, Mr. Barney Farmer. did a podcast with Robin and Alan Moore a couple of years ago, uh, where we sat down and talked for probably about hour and a half, two hours. Mm. And um, I said a few bits, which I kind of thought, well, that was rather brilliant. Alan Moore was just flying and kind of utterly inspired for huge stretches of conversation. And then Robin looked over at the little recording device, turned white and said, I've, I've not got any uh. of that. <laughs> First time I've done that, so uh, we'll, we'll just jump in here. So for uh, the listeners, we got about 20 minutes into a good conversation there and I realised I didn't press record. So uh, there's pearls of wisdom lost, lost like dust in the wind. Yeah, they're gone. They're gone. Yeah. Mysteries, mysteries which will never be, never be known. No, there's a beauty to that. Um, yeah. so, so, I mean, we were talking about sort of writing and, and inspiration and I think, you know, for you during this lockdown, you've, you know, you actually sort of put your time at good use and you've, you've written a book. Yeah. Well, I didn't actually intend to, the, the, it's kind of been a really accidental thing because, um, as of around about this time last year, um, myself and a writer from Hull, we'd been working on a, a stage adaptation of my first book, Drunken Baker. Yeah. And we'd got that through to, um, we'd done a dress read through of that at a theatre in Wigan. And uh, they were interested in staging the finished play. And we got another offer from a really good theatre, which I won't mention for fear of cursing it, <laughs> uh, in Yorkshire, who were interested in giving the play a run. And that was kind of, I thought, well, that's, that's 2020 taken care of really so that I, I had no intention of writing a book <laughs> over, the, yeah. over the last 12 months at all and then obviously reality intervened as it has nasty habit of doing uh, and I did kind of think well what you know I'm not exactly sure what what to do with this time because I had really I had literally 
carved up the calendar and penciled in all the dates and it was just set and, and, and finished and done. So, yeah, it was it was a, a, a quite unexpected thing to have the time to, to do this book. So, so what happened with the, the stage production? Is that in cold storage? Are you ready to dust it off when all this is done? Yeah, I mean, I, mean, I suppose in a way we're quite lucky that we got it to like a very definite end point. We'd gone through rehearsals with um, uh, a couple of really good actors and we, we'd sort of got it to the end of, if you like, the first phase. The, we're, we're happy with the, with the finished script. Uh, so if, if it had to be put in cold storage at all, it was probably far better to do it at that stage than halfway through if we had got into the the the, the actual logistics of staging it and then had to stop. Yeah. Stopped halfway through. The initial phase, I would imagine, would have been uh, a lot more disruptive. But, yeah, it's, it's kind of there. I was hoping I'd be... Speaking to the lad in uh, his lad up in Hull called David Windass, who's done good things with the whole truck theatre. Yeah. Uh, so we're hoping to have a bit of a chat this week. So, I mean, it does seem there's like a half chance that something might be happening before the end of this year. So we're maybe going to have a look at trying to pick that up oh, uh, again in the next next few months, hopefully. Yeah, it's mad how that. Um, I mean. Drunken Bakers, the the Viz comic strip that kind of became a novel has now become a stage show. That seems to be a pretty enduring concept. You know, the, those two characters or, or that one character that narrates the book. How, how did you kind of come up with that as a sort of, I guess, a setting for a piece of comedy, but also something that's kind of grown into something a bit, a bit more than just a bit of a jape. I mean, the novel, for example can be quite bleak it's quite touching in places you know was that always the kind of direction you had in, in mind for these two characters well you know that kind of goes back to something we were just saying in the you know the the the, the, the hinterland of our, <laughs> of our lost conversation about how ideas don't necessarily arrive fully formed and it's really totally I mean that's a great example of it because at the time I sat down uh, and wrote one cartoon strip, and that was really like that'd be like kind of twenty years ago. I would just just wrote one cartoon strip, and at the time of putting pen to paper, as far as I was concerned, that was it. Yeah. One cartoon strip because at that time I didn't really have any regular characters in in Viz. I was kind of just floating ideas at them and lots of one-off things and things which just you know, we're a beginning and an end and, and, and nothing more than that. Uh, so that's, yeah, it started and they said they liked it. And then a couple of months later, they asked if I'd write another. So I wrote another and then it kind of went on like that. And they sort of, every so often would say, will you write another and write another. And if you go, if you do anything, any any kind of characters that you create, that the, the appears to be some small interest in so that you're motivated to keep writing them, you inevitably have to kind of start fleshing them out. Yeah. And I think the, the way that it, that it happened, they were fleshed out over such a long period, um, meant that they kind of 
just became it was all quite natural really there wasn't any point that I'd sit down and say right what's what's this what's the backstory of this person and what's the backstory of that person and how can I mesh them all together it just kind of in a way it's like the way you get to know a person in real life yeah um the you, you you meet somebody you become friends with them or or enemies with them or <laughs> colleagues <laughs> with them or whatever the whatever the nature of your relationship and then the, the longer that relationship goes on incrementally and quite naturally you learn more and more about that person so by the time I came to write the book um they were both, particularly one character, and by design the other one less so, um, were quite well fleshed out. Yeah. And and it was just almost, it was a much easier book to write. I wrote that book in about uh, three months or so. And wow. there were, I think there were only really two drafts. The third draft was just, typos and and tweaks you know it wasn't a, a great uh, amount of work went into the third draft yeah it, it's an interesting but i reread it um earlier this week just to kind of you know get, get up to speed for for this chat and it's it's quite interesting that it's a mix of like obviously it's narrative storytelling there is a sort of a, a general plot to it but it spends more of the time in the past developing that plot it's really just one day in the lives of these two drunken bakers in the bakery, but it kind of mixes up, you know, you sort of normal storytelling. There's a bit of poetry in there and it does this section in the middle where it sort of breaks out from, you know, text and you've just got a little mini comic strip. It's got no dialogue really. It's just, you know, images kind of showing a story. I was that, yeah. you know, what was the kind of decision-making process behind doing that? Did you just think, I want to show this in a way that isn't describing it? Well, it's the middle section, and it's kind of, that's is sort of been the hardest part of the, of the stage adaptation. Uh, in some, to some extent, it's, it, it, was, it was sort of a nod, a, a really deliberate nod to the, to the kind of comic strip yeah. origin. I wanted to have some kind of a comic strip in there just to kind of almost recognise that that's where they'd come from. But it struck me that that, that part is um, dreams, terribly difficult things to write. Yeah. <laughs> it's easy to depict a dream in, in, in cinema or even, I suppose, on any, any kind of visual media. But uh, it's hard to write a dream and it just struck me that that was a fairly easy way uh, to to put a dream into the book. Yeah, and it kind of breaks breaks up the the kind of story in a way that sort of makes it stick out a bit. You know, what it reminded me of. I don't know if you've read, and this would be getting into sort of obscure graphic novels, but Art Spiegelman's Mouse. I've seen extracts of it. I can't honestly say I'm the biggest. I mean, I think I've read like two graphic novels. Right. You, you kind of dabble in the medium, but. Yeah. I mean, this is the, I mean, I think this is the thing about Viz, really. Um, 
any kid in the 70s, like I was a kid in the 70s, which was sort of, I would think, maybe the high watermark of comic culture uh, in this country. Uh, and comics were, were, you know, just a da- the daily stuff of life. It was, we would, tr- you'd, 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 instead of his pocket money, I got a comic every week, or a kid got a comic every week. You'd take your comic into school, trade with your mate's comic. Generally, you'd have one mate who'd get Tiger, and one mate would get Eagle, and somebody would get Beano, and somebody would get Wizard and Chips. He'd swap it around, and you'd virtually see every single comic that yeah. came out country every week and then i mean and this isn't to disparage uh comics or or graphic novels in in any way at all it's just the the kind of culture and 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 upbringing that i had i got to about 12 or 13 and it was like a guillotine coming down yeah that was that i just left it behind completely left it behind um and when this came along it, it was that child it was that era that 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 kind of late 70s early 80s 60s maybe british comic book culture that he tapped into rather than a, the wider kind of global comic book culture that we have today it was a very specific experience of comics at that time so and i think viz draws on that a lot like a lot of the regular strips are just you know rip-offs not rip-offs but you know uh, homages to the classic yeah, yeah. sort of bino and, and dandy characters but with this kind of like adult twist i remember when i was a kid like my dad must have bought like viz from when it, you know he's got thing from issue five onwards or something and i remember finding a stack of them in the loft when i must have only been about 10 and just reading through them and thinking this is incredible you know this is like it's like everything that's good about the beano but it's got rude words in it as well <laughs> you know i didn't get half the humor in it but that kind of like that was my the sort of start of my relationship with viz yeah, well, I mean, I think it's, it's, it's kind of, it taps into uh, anybody uh, who even has any memory of that, that time at all, even if they didn't necessarily hugely participate in it. Uh, and it could be like your own, like kind of secondhand via a, a parent or whatever, but anybody who has any um, recollection of that time uh, will connect with that side of this on site. Instantly, that we will get exactly what kind of oeuvre, if that's the word, uh, it's tapping into. But I, mean, I think they've done a really good job over the last ten or so years because I think you, they couldn't have carried on like that forever because that generation would, you know, would, would drift away and lose interest. So I think they've done quite well in in kind of introducing a a way, as well as keeping all the old characters and, and keeping that 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 core that's the same. They've done quite a good job of bringing in things which are actually now just straight cartoon strips in their own right, which aren't a spoof of anything at all. They're just a cartoon strip to be read as a cartoon strip of now that's, you know. Yeah, there's a mix of the just the silly, like, Gilbert Ratchet um, type stuff, which is just, it's not really that much in terms of, social commentary that there's stuff like yourself which i think is a bit more like a kind of viewpoint on the world today from you know drunken bakers to like you know stuff like hen cabin and mm. you know some of the the odd one-offs that you do 
And then there's the articles, the letters pages and stuff. I mean, f f you know, I started buying Viz myself in like the late 90s, early 2000s. It was good. But I remember when, you know, I think it must have been one of your first drunken bakers in there. And that, it was on another level, you know. Um, so for years, you know, it was me and a few mates at uni, we'd buy Viz and it'd be a cursory like flick through to see how many Healy Farmer strips were <laughs> in there that month to kind of assess the quality, you know. <laughs> but like you say, the last ten years, I think they've kind of expanded and sort of rebranded, and I think they've they've kind of grown a bit. You know, it might have been on the wane for for a few years, you know, a couple of decades back, but this seems to be going good licks now. Yeah, and and it, and it's it's sort of has a feeling to me of actually having quite a because he had that 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 very clear identity as a spoof of a particular kind of magazine and a particular kind of comic book culture for a long time, which he completely nailed. And then I think they sort of realised that they had to kind of maybe broaden out, be a little bit more than that. So there was perhaps a little period um, where it sort of perhaps lacked a very clear identity as a publication. But I think they've been back on that now. And it is again, it's, it's kind of, you know, it has that, that kind of real identity again and has done for, for quite a while. And they've got a great team of writers and cartoonists who contribute to it so it's yeah i'm still really delighted so how did you kind of get your start with viz where you're at did you read it prior to that or did somebody kind of turn you on to it and say you should send some ideas through to these guys well it really goes back to the kind of thing that the reason i mean part of this is is about inspiration i think this podcast isn't it and how people get into yeah. work and how they come to do it and um Viz is, was kind of instrumental in, in that long, I mean, sort of 10 years before I even sent anything to Viz because um, I'd never, I'd never come. I mean, I'd kind of left school and been sort of digging holes and humping potatoes and filling shelves and doing just any old job I could do for any length of time and on and off the door like a lot of people at that time and uh, I just happened to end up working at a printing press and it was just a mate who was obsessed by Viz who loved Viz and I just got talking to him and he sort of Viz had inspired him to start doing his own little fanzine which he kind of knocked up on his really rudimentary computer. It's be like 91, wow. maybe 92 around then. And he'd kind of would sort of run up a hundred copies, photocopied, stapled together, take them around these local pubs, put an honor jar on the bar and, and 10 copies next to it and generally raise enough from each uh, copy to get the materials to do another one. And he just said... You know, you you talk an awful lot of bollocks. <laughs> <laughs> Some of it's quite amusing. Have you ever thought about writing any of it down? And so it started from that, really. Wow. I, I, I thought, okay, yeah, I'll have a bash. Why not? You know, money in it. He wasn't doing it for any 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 cash. It was just purely for the the crack of doing something. And then it's quite a, whatever level of success anything achieves sitting down and putting your ideas on paper and 
ordering them and processing them and then seeing them in in a finished product regardless of, of whether anybody actually buys it is 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 sort of a, a cathartic and good thing just in itself yeah that, that's always going to be the the starting point isn't it like if you're going yeah. to do any, whether it's making music whether it's writing whether it's going up on the stage and telling jokes everyone starts doing it for free at first you don't kind of go from doing nothing to then saying i'm going to be a rock star and getting paid to, to go on stage and play your music or you know you don't say right i'm going to be a writer and you know make your money off the first but you've got to do it a lot of times for free probably it costs to yourself lose money on the process before you kind of break through on that side and for pleasure i mean yeah. that's the thing as well you really really have to enjoy it you know because that's why you keep doing it for nothing yeah so when you do start to get a few quid for it that's it's almost then just a, like kind of a little spur I think, all right, maybe I can give this a bit more time now. Yeah. It's horrible to be kind of really, it's almost like capitalistic or mercantile. Mm. But if you get a few quid back, it kind of just gives you a little prod to think, it's okay, I can spend more time now. If I'm doing this for like an hour or two uh, a day or, or even a week in the evenings, I've, somebody's given me 50 quid, it's worth worth putting a little bit more time and effort into it it's worth giving a little bit more of myself so um yeah and it went off from there and and viz i mean one of the things that viz did and there's loads of people came up via this i mean from like charlie brooker and uh, i think i'm even half convinced that people like harry enfield and a few other people were involved in magazines like oink yeah uh, and then there was a whole slew of really kind of third-rate uh, Viz rip-offs, which yeah. came out. It's such a huge market. I mean, it was this phenomenon. Viz was a real phenomenon. You know, the idea that um, any comic would sell a million copies a month, which I think was its peak or thereabouts, uh, is insane. Yeah. <laughs> it really is uh, uh, an incredible achievement. And so it created this huge market. Suddenly there were dozens of these fairly tawdry uh, rip-offs, but they all sold, you know, 40,000, 50,000 copies, which is more than enough um, to be able to pay contributors a decent amount and be able to give some encouragement to, to, to loads of writers and one you know that, that was on myself because my friend sent box all these fanzines up that he'd done sent them off to one of these magazines they went through picked a few things out of it and said oh we'll use this and use that and picked about four or five things I'd done and I got like a check for 200 quid and it was like what <laughs> <laughs> you are joking and he I didn't even know he'd send them off so it really was a kind of bolt from the blue moment yeah, you can walk into a news agent and see your kind of creation up there on the shelf. Yeah, and I, I'd be like, I was like sort of, you know, 22, 23. I'd never really given any thought to doing anything remotely like that before in my life. Although I've been like a really keen reader, I'd read like all my life. I'd somehow never made that... I think, I don't know, if you're from a working class background, I think there is some real connection that has to be made. The, the idea you, that you can also do this thing. Yeah, yeah, it's a remote thing. Nobody at school 
your careers guidance people never say, well, maybe you could be a writer. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> just, it just doesn't, doesn't happen. So yeah, that, that, that getting that check in my hand suddenly like kind of forged some link that there might be a viable way uh, to actually do it for a living or a part of a living even, which is what it was for most of, uh, most of the, of the subsequent 30 yeah. years. You went semi-pro before going full pro. Yeah, and ended up doing all kinds of things, like writing greetings cards. And How many variations can there be on a, on a greetings card greeting? Well, uh, very few. <laughs> Again, we come back to that, sir, when you talk about writing as a kind of, do you enjoy writing? Or would you like to be a writer? And it's yeah. sort of, well, you know, what kind of writer? What kind of that? Because the, 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 there's as many different kinds of writers as there are. Uh, well, I was going to say people under the sun, but there's there's a bit less than that. But yeah. <laughs> there's certainly <laughs> lots of ways of writing. And that things like greetings cards, and to an extent, newspaper, uh, reportage, uh, is 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 a really audience focused kind of writing. First and foremost, in your head, you are writing for an audience, and that audience has expectations. Um, for for sure, yeah. They, they, you know, somebody's going to go to a certain publication or outlet, usually because they like what they're putting out. They're not going to be challenged too much by nobody by wants to be challenged by a birthday card. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That's not why you buy a birthday card to have your expectations turned on the head. <laughs> <laughs> Just some sort of Werner Herzog style greetings card that really attacks the core of your being. Yeah, what is this? Yeah, I mean the, the, the target audience. I mean, and this is just based on horrible, brutal market research. Is that something like eighty percent of all cards are bought by uh, by women aged forty five uh, to seventy five? That that was the, the case back then. It might have changed slightly now, um, but they you know they would put these figures in front of you and said that is who you are writing for. These yeah. people. There are things they will tolerate. There are things they will not. <laughs> <laughs> how, how many ended up in the uh, in the bin of rejected submissions? Well, I was quite lucky in a way because we co we sort of got um, there was I still ca I carried on working with the the lad who did the fanzine on and off for years on various things, and we're still we're still great friends, um, and just via one or two vaguely successful cards that they wrote, we happened to be along a point when they said, right, well, let's let's try and produce. Let's let's not settle for the for this market that we've got. Let's try and get some, you know, younger people in. Let's try and get more men buying cards. Uh, and so they created this little department at I can't remember which one it was now. It might have been Carlton Cards, which I think is like the the British arm of American Greetings or something like that. Yeah, uh, and they said we'll try and create these new ranges uh, and bring in new people. So we happened to be there uh, when they were doing that because of the other things we were doing with these comics and 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 bits. They sort of approached us, so we managed to get out like two or three entire ranges of cards. 
we sold quite well. And I think one or two of them ran to several ranges. And uh, I couldn't, I mean, if I, it, it should really be a topic I steer clear of because I'm not sure <laughs> what it's doing with credibility any good at all. I don't know. Lou Reed used to work, uh, used to write advertising jingles. <laughs> Again, I mean, it, it was really all that we were doing. You kind of makes you think about just writing individual jokes. Which yeah. again, like we were saying about in that before we when we weren't recording about reporting. Our reporting was a good job. It was good to be a news reporter because it kind of ties you to a desk and a hefty word count every day, day in, day out. No excuses. You're going to write about two thousand words of copy. It's got to be cogent. People have to be able to understand the point that you're trying to put across. At the end. So it was a discipline. It's a discipline uh, in much the same way as just writing straightforward, simple jokes. Yeah. And I think that it's a good excuse to kind of try and rehash everything that we missed on the recording. But I think I'd said, you know, there was a quote, and I still can't remember who it was, who said, you know, as a writer, you know, I write when inspiration strikes, and luckily it strikes every day at 9 a.m. prompt. You know, do you think that kind of like going through writing the greetings cards, but then also having that experience working on the papers where it's a kind of longer form, bigger word count. It sort of works two different sets of muscles as a writer to do that. Do you think that's kind of strengthened how you sit down and approach writing now? Well, it's, it's kind of, it's all about, um, I, th I always think it's about the audience. It's, it's about the audience is, is the key thing in, in all writing. Uh, when you're writing in a newspaper, when you're writing a news story, not a column or a or a feature piece, when you're writing a news story, as a, it's got a, an absolute set of rigid obligations. Uh, they are the audience's expectations of that story. You can't be cute, you can't be obtuse, you can't you can't put a twist at the end. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Never saw that coming. Yeah, you put the most important news at the top. You put the least important news at the bottom. Yeah. You order the, the news pyramid when you're writing a greetings card. The audience is right at the forefront of your mind. You have to meet their expectations. If I write something for Viz, kind of the audience is there, and I know that the audience expects certain things. The audience expects everything to kind of tie up by the bottom of the page. Uh, but they're, they're fairly flexible about what goes on in between where you start and where you finish. They do expect it to make some kind of sense. And yeah. so the visit, you know, the tough editors, they won't just let you, you know, wank <laughs> <laughs> for want of a better word. <laughs> they really do, you know, it's like one or two of the strips I've done over the last few months, which I'm really happy with, uh, went to and fro so many times that they were, in truth, they were kind of, very close to collaborative efforts. Right. Um, with mostly with Graham at Viz. But I mean, that's, that's what you want because you want them, you know, you want them to work as, uh, for that audience. Um, and when you're writing like things like a novel, I don't think about the audience at all. They aren't, they never cross my mind. So it's kind of the different kinds of writing are all generally about the, your, the attitudes to the audience, whether you're trying to satisfy an audience, challenge an audience, 
or, or really just meet some, some fairly rigid demands of the audience. How much of a risk do you think it was kind of taking these two characters when you wrote Drunken Baker? You know, when, how much of a risk do you think it was to take these two characters that kind of had their birth in, in a you know, comedy, comical magazine that were generally funny? There was some bleak, sad, bittersweet moments in it. But generally, you know, people read that because it made them laugh. Do you think it was a, a risk taking them and developing that into a bit more of a, a kind of sober, reflective, sober is probably the wrong word, but a more <laughs> reflective piece uh, that you did with the novel? Well, again, I mean, I think, and I, I hope this does come back to the, the theme of the podcast, which is about sort of the how and why people get into things, isn't it? Yeah. The innovation, what, what pushes people to, to do things. And I think by the time I came to write the book, I'd been casting around for some time. Uh, I'd sort of decided I wanted to write something in a bit of a longer form. And after a couple of false starts with various things, none of which had sort of... One of the hardest parts is... If, you, if you're going to sit down and write fiction, I think, is to try and find your own voice. And you never really do. You never really escape your influences. And I think it's the hard part. It's, it's trying to escape those conscious influences. Hmm. You know, um, the, the number of times I'd sat down to write things a longer, you know, a longer form and kind of then sat back and looked at it and just thought, that's just like some third-rate S.J. Perelman impersonation, <laughs> <laughs> which is, you know, he's one of my favourite writers. I absolutely love him, but I just have, do not have the, the the dexterity or the vocabulary to try and emulate what he does. Yeah. It, it just comes out tinnied and, and awful. So I kind of knew I had to try and write something which would help me find write how I write you know, write uh, something um, where I was just, my subconscious influences uh, were forming the text rather than my conscious desire to appear witty and uh, erudite. Yeah. So I, I knew those characters so well, and it really had been kind of staring me in the face because by then I'd been doing them for, writing the characters for about 16 years. And it had sort of been staring me in the face. I knew them so well. And this is the this is the really odd part. I knew those characters so well that I could almost switch off. It was it was not easy as such, but it was easy to write naturally for them. Because the first draft of the book was more or less exactly the way I would write the first draft of a cartoon strip. Right. That that is that it's a, the cartoon strips. All of them they start out are a mixture of uh, of of prose and lines and scribbled drawings, and they will rattle on for five, six, seven sheets of air four, and then gradually be whittled down to nineteen or twenty panels in a strip. And so I sat down to write the book as I would sit down to. To write a cartoon strip, but just just kept going basically. Yeah. <laughs> so, and I think it was the fact that it kind of doing something which is very familiar and comfortable, and approaching it in that way, 
so what about me fine? Well, this is how I, this is how I write. This is how I write when I'm not consciously thinking about writing. Yeah, the, the reason I asked you like that kind of taking the step from having them as comic characters to to the novel is, I think a lot of people will find it easy to just find a thing. This is the way I do it. This this is a, a success. It's working for me, and not really look for the next step. You know, how can I develop this or how can I change it and you know, taking that step in the unknown, that's not necessarily whether, you know, something you're creating, something you're writing, but just generally in your hobbies, your pursuits, your your kind of work life, you know. So it's always a big step to, to kind of move things up and change it up, but it can be healthy to do it. It's never always going to work, but, you know, sometimes it can be more rewarding and actually strengthen the initial pursuit, whatever that might be. Well, to a certain extent, I mean... Like I say, I was writing for probably a year or two before I got any money at all from it. And then, obviously, when the, the bubble burst and all those those Viz rip-offs, everybody realised, God, these are terrible. Yeah. So there was then another couple of years uh, where it was very lean. That's obviously when I'm doing the bits of greeting cards. There were long periods after that where there was no work at all. Hmm. But I carried on writing. I carried on writing because by that time, it had become... Uh, close to a hobby it was a I hate the word hobby <laughs> uh, <laughs> a pastime and ent- a way of entertaining yourself a way of doing something which kind of seemed to ex- you could express yourself whilst giving yourself a laugh and all those kind of things so I think the, the idea of taking them from a cartoon strip to a to a novel is kind of the way that somebody who might have started fishing with like a really bog standard fishing rod. I think, oh, I enjoy this. And then they'll go out and get a better fishing rod. And then 10, 15 years later, think, you know, I should really get a good fishing rod because fishing's what I'm all about. So they go out and they get all the kit. And then by that time, so even a hobby is always moving forward, isn't it? Yeah, I'm, I'm kind of caught up with uh, cycling myself uh, at the moment. So okay. I started off with a knackered old bike and I'm kind of... I've, I fear I'm on the road to being a full-blown mammal. As long as you know why you don't, you know, start turning up in all that lycra. Yeah. <laughs> With the Darth Vader helmets on. <laughs> uh, I, I can feel the siren call of that, you know. I keep you know, <laughs> flicking through the catalogues, being like, you know, it's not, it doesn't look too bad, that, actually. <laughs> well, do you know, if you, if, you do, if you do end up uh, getting to that, then that's, that's not the worst thing in the world. I suppose unless you catch sight of yourself in a mirror one day and think, oh, my God, <laughs> yeah. what have I? <laughs> it's when you start catching sight and going, ah, not bad, not bad. <laughs> I could wear this down the pub. Uh, so yeah, it, it was. It was uh, like I said. I'd always because I'd always been a reader and I'd always been interested um, in books. It'd always been in the back of my mind. I'd like to write something. So it wasn't much of a risk. I didn't feel like it was a risk. It felt very much like kind of part opportunity and part just a natural progression. And I, I don't think uh, one thing I was really keen to do was write something that maybe somebody who didn't read a great deal uh, of that kind of book, but had enjoyed the cartoon strip. Uh, that somebody might read and, and, and sort of see what that that's consistent with it. It's kind of fits. It doesn't jar. There's nothing. It's not at odds with it in any way. Uh, I, I think it, it kind of it sort of runs alongside the strip 
Yeah, I mean, in, in a way, it's it's kind of it exists in the same universe as you know the, the Drunken Baker's extended universe, but it, it's not. <laughs> I, I wouldn't say it's a direct. I didn't read it as necessarily even being the same characters. You know, I think what what is at the core of that story is just the dynamic between these two blokes. Who mm. it's not even a love hate relationship, is it? It's like a a love of booze and a hate of each other relationship. But you, you could transpose that away from the bakery and make it you know drunken butchers or drunken uh, steel workers whatever it might be the important thing yeah. about is the dynamic the the bakery is just the setting where it takes place well, i'm quite interested in the relationship i mean I've, I've read an awful lot of strips about shops yeah he once told me so they said you, you know everything you do seems to be about shops okay <laughs> well shops shops are sort of fairly interesting places uh to me it's particularly that kind of small shop you get people involved in the the kind of a, a colleague relationship hmm. very intimate um but also quite confining yeah. um this is like go back to the idea i wanted to write uh, something about people who were drunk and confined who were drunk who didn't particularly like each other but couldn't get away from each other so you yeah. think well you'll have to be colleagues you know, because friends or a married couple or anything would just go the separate ways, so they need to have some kind of reason, something that ties them together, uh, which is not quite so easy to walk away from. So it could have been butchers, but then I don't think that would have worked as well uh, as bakers, because bakers, bakery itself, the actual, is quite complex. Yeah. It's more of a craft and something like butchery, which I would say is perhaps a skill. There's going to be loads of comments from furious butchers now. Yeah, I mean, I'm not knocking. I mean, we the, sometimes you get very. There's a great problem in in Britain where they talk about where you talk about, like, say, like disciplines and and crafts and arts, and you sort of will say, well, art is not that's craftsmanship. It's not art. That's craft. It's like when people point at a beautiful car in the street and say that. that that is art. And you think, well, no, it's not. It's not yeah. art. It's craftsmanship. It's engineering. It's design. It's not art. That's not to dismiss or disparage craft or engineering or design. <laughs> They're amazing uh, disciplines and, and work much the same set of skills and imagination and and all those things, but they're not art. <laughs> yeah, you occasionally see these like pictures on, on Twitter and stuff of somebody who's painstakingly drawn a photorealistic photo with like a biro and people say that's art and it's like is it because a printer can do that <laughs> there's no expression kind of in there yeah well i mean i was in the, the thing about art is that art um art just has no purpose hmm. is the thing art has no purpose it has no obligations to the audience i the only person any art has an obligation to is the artist that's it that's where it begins and ends. They shouldn't be thinking at all about an audience or any purpose necessarily. They should set off on a much more open-ended thing. But again, people hear you say things like that. So what you're saying, you're knocking butchers. You're saying butchers <laughs> are only a skill, but bakers are craft. And it's like, yeah, well, they're both remarkable and essential things. And that is not to knock anything to say it's not the same as another thing. <laughs> But and, and bakery because obviously it requires a degree of touch. If you get a recipe, you write a recipe down for a Victoria sponge cake, and you give it to five people, 
five ovens, five sets of ingredients and say, off you go, you're going to get, you know, one or two cakes, which are broadly similar. You'll get one, which might be exemplary. You'll get one, which might be disgusting. Yeah. You know, the, 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 that, that's the essence of it. So it, there's within that, because you've got two people, then you've got like a certain potential for amount of pettiness. My Battenberg is better than your Battenberg. Yeah. See what I mean? So that's why it had to be something like 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 bakery. It couldn't it couldn't be just any like a um it couldn't be like it couldn't be just behind the counter of a chemist shop. Yeah, there's I think that sort of intricacy to it. And like you say, like a, I mean, a drunken butcher to me is not that unbelievable. In the village where I grew up there was a butcher and, and the bloke looked like Father Jack from father ted you know he, he was yeah. an old so you'd see me knock off at three and he'd be around to the off license which was just next door and he'd be out with you know a couple of bottles of got rot you know so i think a drunken butcher the idea of somebody pissed up and hacking away at a piece of meat with a cleaver is you know well with yeah, that tip on the fingers yeah that, that's the kind <laughs> of limit of that whereas drunken bakers like you say i mean there's there's so many kind of bits in the novel and the strip where like Cakes are getting burnt, rotten. Ingredients are getting used. Stuff's getting baked into them that doesn't work. There's so, I think it's more fertile ground for. And there's another element to me which I think is which is kind of really um, important. And this was I definitely had this right at the forefront of my mind when I started. I'd done a stint as a postman, as a temporary postman, maybe 1993 uh, uh, or four, something like that. Yeah. And uh, part of my, I would like walk down to the depot every day, and I had to go past the big old what was then the big cent, like co-op bakery, which used to be in the the centre of town. And there would always, and this would be like half three in the morning, because you you had to get down and do your own sorting and everything before you did your round. Uh, there'd, there'd always be bakers sat out on the step having a fag. Looking shagged out as well. And you realise yeah. that they'd probably started two hours or an hour and a half previously. And that uh, that, that bakery, that you were going to go and make bread every day from from scratch and have it ready to sell at eight o'clock in the morning, you're by necessity going to have to be up early. And you're going to be doing most of your day's work while people are still asleep. Yeah. So you kind of... Because you're living in a different time frame, to an extent, you're kind of isolated again by that. As anybody who's ever worked a, an odd night shift or been a postman or anything like that, no, you, you start to you occupy just a, a small extent your own little world away from, you know, away from like your mates. You'd be going, I'd be going out for a drink, and then at like sort of nine o'clock, I'd be thinking I should really get to bed. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I've got to be up in six hours. Um. So it kind of again just isolates and becomes a little cell for these two people. They don't really, they don't even follow the same timetable as everybody else. Yeah. So they're they're uh, five p.m. as everyone else is midnight. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's in the book somewhere laying like that, isn't it? I think something like that. Yeah. I read it recently. It's probably lodged uh, up there. Yeah. Well, that's that's what we, you know. That's my hope. You see. That's, that's all I hope to achieve. <laughs> Stuck in there. Um, and then, so, uh, Coketown, the second book, that's, it's different to Drunken Baker in that it kind of is a you know different setting. It kind of moves away from them. Draws a bit more on, I think, social commentary as well. 
um, but still has that kind of same bleak, comic, dark humor in terms of the outlook. Um, there's a great passage in there that just revolves around piss in pubs that, <laughs> it, it, for me, is pure poetry. Um, I, I loved it. But was that more of a... That's where the, that's where the book started from. No, the whole book started from, from that. The passage about urine soaking into the plasty, I mean, that part. Yeah. That was the whole thing that started in the pub, which stank of urine. I was sat in a pub with my phone, tapping it out. And uh, it there's just small pub impressed and not, you know, a real kind of hole in the wall place where the toilets are maybe seven feet. The actual, the, the, the porcelain might be perhaps 10 feet from the, from the bar. Yeah. They're a door, of course. They're not, they're not, we're not animals. No, no. <laughs> so, and it was a really old pub, beautiful old pub, beautiful old listed pub, but the toilets are kind of, have been, uh, it's in a shred of new ground this century, certainly. I, 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 if at all, I don't. I've been going in there for for sort of thirty five years, and I don't recall the toilets changing one one jot. So I realized suddenly, and this again in the advent of the smoking ban, yeah, which had masked this quite efficiently for for so long. Uh, yeah, and then it just stank, and we could tell that there'd been a lot of air freshness put around the bar so he had that kind of feel of like some sort of 17th century fop who was absolutely <laughs> foul covered in in perfumes and pomade yeah just always that undertow uh, uh of of horrible horrible fetid aromas <laughs> so the book yeah that that all that that passage and there's a good lot of that is kind of as written on that first First things, I think there's a bit of near somewhere near the end of the book where somebody asks him, says, or oh, is this the one about piss? Yeah. Because the book originally was just that. It was going to be just, <laughs> just about you. But I, I sort of thought that's a bit much. A bit niche. <laughs> I'll get myself a reputation. Yeah. <laughs> there might be a market for it, but it might not be the market that you want. Yo, yeah, oh, your God, well, yeah, let's not get into scat. <laughs> <laughs> uh, <laughs> well, speaking of scat, I don't know if, if you've got your camera on, I don't know if you can see it, but behind me on the wall, I've actually got a signed uh, your scat of the Antarctic uh, print there. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, nice one. Good work, that, mate. Yes. Well, the good things about Viz is, you, you know, if you can just come with a really good pun, <laughs> one really good pun, and then flesh that out, it will snap your arms off. That's the starting point of it. It's, so many ideas come from that, I think. But again uh in the sort of the, the tears in the rain section that we lost you know we said the idea that you have this one idea and sometimes that mm. can sort of snowball out from you know it's as a musician it might just be one little riff and then suddenly that becomes a, a great big smash hit or it could be like the kernel of a joke or one i watched um uh tenet uh you know this christopher nolan film okay. the other day yeah and I swear to God, that film started because he, he, someone came up with the idea and said, wouldn't it be really cool if there was a fight scene with one person going forward in time and one person going back? And suddenly there's now a $200 million film made out just from this silly little <laughs> idea. Because the film's all right, but it's really just about these fight scenes and the rest of it's just padder. Uh, well, yeah, I mean, there's a lot you can do with a, 
with the fight scene, I suppose. But maybe it's kind of like the the, the is an extended version of that Family Guy joke about the fight with the chicken. Yeah, that's been going for years. <laughs> I mean, we were, one thing we did talk about, we mentioned this in the part we didn't record, was, and I think this is really important, I think this, this is something that puts a lot of people off having a go, you know, a sitting down and actually sort of starting and trying to write something, is this idea that unless you're sitting down with a fully formed vision of the finished article, unless you've got like a cork board covered in post-it notes, yeah, all connected with bits of string, uh, that you just can't sit down and start tapping the keyboard. Mm. And it's um, a really wrong, uh, a wrong mindset. And I think if people can just get over that, they would they would sort of you know find it a lot easier to just sit down. Uh, and things we really want to do exactly yeah and most of us have got a device in our pocket which you know you don't have to wait till you get home and sit down in front of the computer you can just whip out your phone type a few notes in and you were saying at the start about being sat in a pub and just kind of you know writing out a lot of the notes for coketown or this and the new book on your phone whilst you were kind of sat there in situ yeah well yeah i mean because it's it's i think you I mean, it would have been unthinkable on the telephones of 15 years ago, which were, you know, four or five centimetres across with those little biddly yeah. keys. You just wouldn't have done it. But I think they, they, they really are set up now. Uh, that, that, that That's a distinct possibility. You can do it. You couldn't, I mean, you, you would struggle to sit down and write a 50,000 word uh, novel. Yeah. It could be done, but you, you'd, you'd probably end up with ruined, ruined arthritic crippled thumbs by the end of it boy you, you don't need to do that that's the beauty of it you don't need to do that you write it in your phone you email it to yourself and you pick it up on your nice comfortable laptop or or, or desktop computer later on you, you do it in comfort and leisure yeah you can move between between different sort of formats and stuff you're not sort of tied to a typewriter or your word mm. processor um you're a bit of a master on twitter as well i think you've you've kind of master the, <laughs> the short form uh tweet you kind of pack a lot in a lot in there um do you think having you know social media having the phones available it's actually kind of limiting the way people write you know we're kind of geared up for these short snappy one-liner tweets you know that all you know are kind of people can easily see what the point is and maybe the temptations yeah. there not to go for this longer form style of writing so much it's a very interesting thing is Twitter. I mean, I'm not somebody. I don't. Um, I would say it's, it's probably the the kind of. I don't really watch television a great deal. I kind of. I watch films and uh, keep up with some news and you know the odd documentary and, and such and, and the like. You know the good good comedy things that are on. Uh, but I don't really watch a lot of television. I still a lot of music uh, more in the day. And, and Twitter, I treat as a as a as a medium. Yeah. As much. And it's something that I kind of watch. And I watch it, um, I mean, both my first two books and and this one, which I've just finished. I uh, See, I'm really interested, more interested in people than I am in stories. And I sort of tend to think stories are a little bit, um, I don't think of myself as a storyteller as such. Stories are a little bit, I don't know. 
they're not interesting to me stories people are interested i find people much more interesting like the idea of having beginning middle and an end you have your yeah your setup your conflict and then your resolution and everything's wrapped up nice. life's not remotely like that it's, yeah it, it, it does a really odd thing of of sort of convincing people that life is like that i think as well that that whole uh, linear narrative bit which is I think it's okay. For, I mean, it's like why, why I find things like Harry Potter worrying more than, <laughs> more than the fact that you know that adults are reading children's literature so much as just the, the kind of of children's literature. They read. But I don't want to get into that. Yeah. Well, well, you know, they, they do put them on the adult covers now. So when you're sat on the train, yeah. at least it looks like you're reading a, a grown-up book. Yes, but Pete, anyway, I've come back. People are more in, people are more interesting to me. I'm more, much more interested in. Uh, in people, so I find Twitter is almost it's like people watching, you know. You go out, I've always used to just get like sit in a beer garden or in a pub or on a station or anywhere and really do some people watching. And I think Twitter almost is a, an extension of that. Uh, on one level, you kind of do have some sense of, uh, of watching, watching people's thoughts, watching how people express the thoughts you see uh, tides of human nature up there and it's also i've always used it as i mean one of the things is i think i think people might see it more clearly in this this next book when it finally comes out how people might start to see how i kind of work things out on twitter it seems to me a good excuse to go up there put a sentence together which expresses a thought or an idea and put it out and see what the response is. It's the benefit of having that medium. I know a lot of comedians will yeah. do that. They'll kind of test jokes out on Twitter and it kind of, you know, really, I think that short format with 240 characters, you know, the, the idea of a joke, I think, you know, the say we joke writing, just cut your words, cut your words, you know. So if you're limited by the characters, you've got to yeah. really be be sharp in how you put it out. Then I'd never really thought of it as a way to to kind of test writing as well. Well, yeah, that brevity, the discipline of brevity is... So I, I admit, to begin with, I was when they sort of made it 280 characters, I sort of thought, wow, that's, that actually makes makes it a little bit less useful as a, as something to make you concise and make you clear yeah but you soon think well you just it makes you concise and clear except you just have to do it in paragraphs rather than sentences now yeah so it still it still does that function but it works but it's not just about jokes it isn't just about putting the joke out seeing whether people laugh sometimes you can and uh, i wouldn't tell you when or how often i do this but you can you can sometimes put out a, a sentiment or or an image and the response you're looking for isn't necessarily approval or or condemnation. You, what you're looking at for is the, the precise tone and nuance uh, of how people respond to it. And from that, you kind of sort of can glean some little idea of how that person uh, sees themselves and how they're re the, the, the kind of esteem in which they hold their views and values how they project themselves so it's, it's kind of in, it's interesting not just in like oh that's a joke people like so i can tell that joke 
Is, is how, how succinctly can you kind of express an idea? Well, if you want to find out really about modern modern British, because I'm more, I mean, I've, I've, I've interact with a few American people and people from around the world and a few Aussies and things like that who get this. It's mostly British. It's mostly British people that um, communicate with it. And I think if you want to understand something about how British people, a certain kind of British person, because obviously their Twitter is not real life. And it is to an extent a self-selecting audience. But if you want to understand a little bit about how people see themselves and project themselves and wish themselves to be uh, perceived, Twitter, I think, with that kind of brevity, with that discipline that's required to convey ideas and thoughts and things, which everybody has to subscribe to, is, is a is a fairly good place to look yeah it's always a good barometer of of well in some ways a, a good barometer of, of sentiment or feeling or mood i mean i remember at the, the you know the start of that first lockdown twitter became it, it was just i think everyone went from doing the daily commute and going to work you know people were on furlough and, and whatever that may have been and it, they must have seen the traffic like spike up through the roof and i think it was around the same time i I noticed you'd stopped tweeting for for a while. I think I might have sent you a, a message or something, being like, "All oh, okay? You're writing a, a new book or something?" You're yeah, like, indeed. So th that's kind of looped well, us around was... back back to, I think where, where we came in on this was the, this new book that you've sort of put together in in lockdown. Do you want to tell me a bit more about that and when we can expect it? One of the things I've, I've kind of done a lot during lockdown is I've kind of revisited a lot of artists and writers and things that I've, I've sort of been into a lot over the years. I've read a lot of, a fair bit of Camus and I've watched an awful lot of uh, Beckett, the players, there's so many, you know, YouTube's phenomenal. And there's just so, I've watched, yeah. uh, must have watched Endgame with about 10 different <laughs> And different leads, <laughs> and they are. I mean, and the thing about a play like that is that you change the leads, and you really do make quite a big, uh, big change in the in, in the whole experience. Well, it's taking that recipe for the Victoria sponge and <laughs> in someone else's hands. But I think one of the things that he does, and one of the things I've, I've picked up and gleaned from one or two documentaries, is that he's he's very unwilling to explain any of his work. Which I think a lot of people sort of thought, well, that's stubbornness. But I kind of have come to think, well, maybe that's actually part of his work. Is that you don't want to explain too much. You, you want there to be a degree of what do you think? Well, it's that great that great quote of David Lynch's, which I think yeah tweeted way where he's sort of people asking what's you know Mulholland Drive about, and they said, well, what do you think it's about? And they'd tell him, and he would say, that's exactly what it's about. Yeah. Uh, you. <laughs> he's the master at that you know and there's another quote from him it's like i like things that leave the theater to dream you know he kind of puts yeah. it out there and well if, if that's how you see it then that's what it is and the flip side is you know you get a lot of you know especially with the, the superhero action films where even sort of weeks and months years after they've initially come out there's still the people who made it are still explaining what it was about or what plot points mm. were and does this mean that and I think that takes something away from it. You know, you don't want to, 
you, know, you don't want the butcher to come around your house and explain exactly how the sausage <laughs> you're eating was made. You know, just kind of enjoy it, take it for what it is. Sausage, particularly the sausage, you want there to be some mystery. Oh, yeah. I want my sausage to be 100% mystery. I did a stint working at a butcher's on a YTS when I was about 16 in the cooperative wholesale movement. And, uh, yeah, believe me, sausages are a mystery. <laughs> uh, best left, mystifying. Yeah. Uh, but, yeah, so I wouldn't want to give too much away what it's about. But that period when I, I kind of I did decide I needed to stop tweeting that wasn't really anything other than um i sort of decided that this this book is a bit different than the others the first two um really and it is kind of more it's about a person it's about a, an individual um but uh it's not it's more it's more the, the other two were were kind of semi-autobiographical fiction which I think is very difficult when they talk about cultural appropriation and that's this kind of really controversial thing but I don't to me it isn't particularly controversial really because I don't honestly think it's like I started writing the book uh, a book not this book sorry I'd, I'd started doing some notes for a book a couple of years ago before Corktown about a homeless uh, woman that, I keep, uh, that I'd seen a lot of around Preston in a really kind of shocking state. And I sort of thought, I'd like, we need to, uh, to try and write something about homelessness and about that kind of being on the margins in society. And I sort of did a few thousand words from the perspective uh, of this woman. And uh, I sort of showed it to a friend. And she just said, uh, "You have that's shy." <laughs> <laughs> I'd, you know, it's very difficult. You can't really imagine what it's like. You, nobody can really know what it's like to be anyone other than themselves. And I, and I think you really, very few people have much of a very clear idea of exactly who they are themselves, anyway. So, but, but you've kind of you've got to draw on something. You know, I, I couldn't write about. You have to draw something, yeah. The, the experience of some, you know, Chaga tribesman from Tanzania in a sort of realistic or honest way, um, uh, yeah, any more than you know somebody could write about my experience. There's, there's got to be a bit of yourself in everything. Yeah, there does, there does, and I think the more you want to actually sort of try and um, kind of express something or write something that has some kind of feel of. Uh, that might really have some sort of truth that is is kind of meaningful to somebody other than yourself is by just being honest to yourself, yeah, and, and hoping that you aren't that much of a weirdo that it doesn't make any sense to anyone else at all. <laughs> <laughs> if nobody gets it, you're like, I, I am definitely a weirdo. That's <laughs> it. <laughs> but I, you know, I'm I'm convinced I'm in most ways a fairly average human being, so it'll come across. And uh, so this book is um, uh, a little bit, I won't say more fictional, but I knew it couldn't, I mean, like the bloke in Corktown is essentially me if I was 10 years younger yeah. and had made a few different career choices and a few bits of people I know quite well uh, sort of bolted on and stirred in the bloke in uh, Drunken Bakers is, is roughly somebody about my age who perhaps didn't 
cut down the alcohol quite so drastically as I have done over maybe the last 10 or 15 years who ploughed on relentless. So there's, there's always this, the kind of you, but versions of you, yeah. different versions of you if you'd gone down different routes. Now, this one is somebody that's quite a bit older than me. So that's obviously, I have no idea. I have a vague idea what it's like to be old. My knees give me a few tips. Yeah. There's uh, my back is, uh, you know, that's had a big input into my idea of what it means to be old over the last six <laughs> months. I think most people's sense of uh, getting old starts from the back and the knees. Yeah, yeah. Although the, the stress points. Um, but, but yeah, and it, but it is more, you are reaching more. You are, in terms of how you feel about yourself and about your prospects and things like that, you, you, it's more speculative. You don't really know what it's like to be old. Yeah. Um, until until you until you're old, and then I suspect you're still guessing slightly. So I needed, I think, really for the first draft, I, I sort of thought I really do actually just need to just focus on this a little bit. Yeah. And really try and get the voice right and get the person right. So yeah, I just dropped. I, I kind of dropped off Twitter for about two or three months. And yeah, it was good. I'd recommend everybody do it. Yeah, it's always healthy to have a bit of a. A detox. Um, I've kind of done it myself in the past, mostly not out of choice, just because I've lost my phone or something. But <laughs> it always feels kind of refreshing to do it. Or, you know, when you go away somewhere, you're like, oh, it's lovely this, isn't it? There's no yeah. phone signal. We're just with away. And what's the first thing people do when they, you know, they're on the drive back home and they get that first bar of signal? Is that straight down <laughs> onto the device? You know. Funny though, I've never, I've never come back. I've never gone back to it quite the same way since. Oh, it really yeah. changed the me me kind of relationship with it a little bit. I kind of am much happier now to kind of just leave it alone, not have a look for two or three days. It's uh, in some regards, I think, in terms of that whole thing of the the feeling of discipline and the, the practice, if you like, that part of it, I, I don't really sort of feel I need I, I fall back on as much. So I think that's another reason why I've gradually. Sort of maybe a bit less of a of a gobshite on there, <laughs> a year or two really is that 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 whole running sentences forming uh, ideas and, and putting them out there is is not something I quite feel a need to do. Yeah, you've you've scratched that itch. Yeah, well, it's kind of I think no, it's not so much of an itch as so much as you know, I found it useful to do that for for quite a long time to use it almost as a as a as a notebook in some ways and he's kind of sort of really don't really feel quite the need to do it so much anymore i'd still do the other the, the whole people watching thing i don't know i mean obviously i do like engaging with people too i mean that, that makes me sound like i'm really some kind of uh, horrible like monster just peering down a microscope i do enjoy social media anthropology <laughs> yeah <laughs> I do, they're all you know it's great fun and, and there's most of the people you know, Joe public is is far more entertaining, funny, and insightful than people who do it for a living. Yeah. So that that side of it's still still fun. Yeah, it is nice to to connect. I think that's one of the benefits when it's not toxic. It's a good way to connect with people. Mm. Um, so so we've got you've kind of finished the third book. It's the 
the, the third one in the trilogy, the the armor. Like more of a yeah, it's, it's a it's a it's a companion piece, I think, to Cork Town. Yeah, more than so We've got these alternative versions of you from the uh, the Barney Farm in Multiverse. <laughs> uh, when can we expect to to see the third novel out? Yeah, I make a, a huge rod for me on back with these things. Every single book I put out has come out around about three months after it was originally intended because I've ended up kind of buggering about, missing deadlines, and I've kind of really pushed the boat out on this one because I was promised to deliver it before Christmas and then I promised to deliver it uh, by the end of January. And in the event, it's kind of just gone off to up to wrecking ball the start of last week so they it's actually very difficult for them to, share, to schedule anything uh we're looking at them um probably towards the end of april beginning of may at the minute but i mean i'm gonna have to work around you know everything else that they've got going on oh, that's fine i mean that to a great layer i mean i, I kind of one of the when i'm writing all the books um i'll, I'll sort of write them through and because they're mostly told in a, a kind of you know a narrow a monologue essentially in most cases i sort of i always have to i've got the, the the voice has to feel right to me i have to be totally happy with the the voice and i'll, I'll sort of sit down the like the last test i always do is is try and read the entire thing through in one out loud yeah. and i think you read anything out loud uh, and this i don't think this applies to any kind of writing at all whether it's Repertage or or a journalistic feature or a non-fiction or a fiction whatever it is, you read it out loud in kind of your natural reading voice. Things that aren't right, it's like uh, tripping over a brick in the road. Yeah, it really does. Oh, that sounds wrong. It's like a clang when you run into something that just isn't right. And I just kept reading this book through, and I just kept clanging into. The- <laughs> and it was just things that weren't right and, it just, and I sort of thought I could send it now but I know if I read through this you know if I'm doing it in a reading and I kind of come to this part I'm just going to fall fall to pieces I have to, I have to admit to the audience that it's terrible yeah it'd be like you know, having a, a sort of tooth missing your tongue would be at it constantly you wouldn't be able to leave it be yeah, well, it's it's kind of I'm not I'm never writing anything with any expectation that's like this is going to be the one, you know. The Richard and Judy are probably going to pick up on this. Oh, yeah. Oprah's book of the week. <laughs> <laughs> it is. This is what you need. Yeah, it's, it's just some old guy wandering around in a park. <laughs> a stranger. It's just what you need. <laughs> Uh, I'm, you're writing. I know I'm hopeful, always hopeful, um, that it will cover its production costs, make a few pounds for Wrecking Ball, uh, make a few quid for me, enough to justify doing another one. And anything that happens past that is a bonus, you know. Uh, or it's got to be right to me. And if it isn't right to me, if I'm not happy with it, then there's just literally is no point sending it <laughs> and say, well, publish mm. that anywhere because we've got a deadline, haven't we? It's, <laughs> it would just be a pointless exercise. Well, it can be a double-edged sword, though. It's like, was it, the 80-20 rule, you know, get it, whatever it might be, 80% so you're happy with it, that's the threshold. Because otherwise you could just end up in this 
constant cycle of going back and improving it. What was it? Guns N' Roses when they did that the, the sort of Chinese Democracy album it took them 15 years to make it and when it came out it was not 15 years worth of quality <laughs> yeah well I mean that, that suppose that's the balance isn't it really I think uh, I mean I think 80-20 is possibly uh, uh, not bad yeah that's about right but then I think part of that is in a way the, there is parts of the story which, uh, if it is a story, the parts of the, the actual text, was, I'm kind of slightly confused by myself, and I know that that, that anybody who reads it is going to find it quite confusing. I think what you can always get exactly right is um, the actual mechanics of it, the actual nuts and bolts of it. It's possible to get that right. You can communicate. You can get the part of you where the actual mechanism by which you are communicating what it is you're trying to say, you can get that exactly right. What you're trying to say, that might be, well, that's a different story. But you can make sure that you directly, I mean, this is the thing, I keep going back to Becca, which is terrible. So I know people think I'm like some sort of a tribute act. <laughs> but then most, most things which have been any good for the last 60 years in comedy and Writing have been more or less a tribute act. Yeah. <laughs> um, the reason he took over and was so explicit in his instructions uh, about how his how his how his work was to be uh, produced is because I think he did understand that he did understand. I can't the the actual what I'm trying to say. Goodness knows whether that's what I set out to say. Whether that's eighty, twenty, seventy, thirty, sixty, forty. I'll never know, but I can make sure that, that that the actual bit in between me and the viewer is 100% right. So whether they, what they're getting is any good or not is neither here nor there, but they're getting it as I intended it. Yeah, and well, it's personal taste, isn't it? How, how people yeah. receive something, but if you're happy with how it's gone out, like you say, art is, is for the artist and what everyone else makes of it I'm- is up to them. <laughs> I think I'm happy. Once we get talking, once we get a, a date, um, once we have an, a very clear idea when it's going to be um, coming out, I'll very gingerly open it again. Nice. Uh, and then have a look. Yeah. But until, until then, I'm going to try and forget all about it. Started something else. Now. Nice. All right. <laughs> look, look forward to that one as well. So April uh, f- for the book, and hopefully we'll, we'll see Drunken Bakers on stage at some point this year. Yeah. Tremendous. So if anyone wants to uh, connect with you online, find out more info about the novels, where can they find you? Um, I only really do uh, Twitter because I can't really be bothered doing anything else. So anybody that is interested uh, in doing anything, uh, drop me a line there. I'll get in touch sooner or later. (laughs) Brilliant. I'll, I'll stick links uh, up to your Twitter and, and to the Drunken yeah. Baker in Coketown pages on Wrecking Ball's yeah. website as well for anyone who's interested in, in picking up a copy. Oh, that'd be brilliant, mate. Lovely stuff. Uh, well, yeah, enjoyed this chat. Uh, shame. I, I wish I could remember what we yeah, actually but... spoke about for that first 20 minutes. I'm sure it wasn't as high grade as, as the rest of the hour. But yeah, cheers for uh, coming on. <laughs> yeah, no problem at all, mate. I hope to catch up with you in person soon, somewhere probably. Uh... In the Midlands this time. Yeah, yeah. I've uh, waved goodbye to London now, so if there's any more live events, I'll, I'll be there with bells on. Well, that's, I mean, that's the real, this, uh, one of the real pisses off of, of this, this pandemic was Court Town, which was 
again was delayed and delayed. And then because they started with the play um, almost about two weeks after court time came out. But I thought it doesn't matter because it's winter. We'll get to springtime. I won't do any readings for court town. I'll, I'll pick it up in March, April. And uh, I had a really hope to get around, do like Birmingham and uh, Newcastle, a bit wider of a trot round. So, yeah, court town. I think I've done, I did one reading. So, yeah, I think that was the one at London in the horse hospital, wasn't it? Yeah, it will be. Then I had to go and catch the night bus. I recall that, yeah, you darted off uh, early doors after that. Jesus Christ, that was, I tell you what, that was no idea. <laughs> that was no idea. That was a frigging novel, that. <laughs> is that. Is that novel number four? <laughs> <laughs> oh, no, I think that's already settled, actually, mate. I started writing something yesterday, just an idea, which I sort of wasn't exactly sure what it was going to be. Like, this comes back to what we're talking about, fully formed ideas. Something I've kicked around at the back of my head for about, oh, well, f- f- 10 years. Since I was a reporter, a story I covered really on late on, the last like a murder I covered late on when I was a reporter. Wow. A, a really strange, strange story. Uh, branching out into the murder mystery. You're going to threaten Ian Rankin? Yeah, but it will be told in my, exactly <laughs> my own inimitable one-person rambling. Yeah, d- drunken CSI. <laughs> yeah, but yeah, it, it's, again, it's not fully formed. There's about a thousand words of something in the computer, and I'll be looking at it a bit later on today. And it might be two thousand words of something by the end of the week, and then maybe, you know, something might come out of it. But that's the way to go approach it. You know, lovely one one step at a time. It, that's that's the only way you do it. You write a book one word at a time. Exactly, man. Lovely. Well, cheers for coming on. Um, hopefully, we'll catch up soon. And yeah, Barney Farmer, everybody. Cheers, man. Tell her. That was Barney Farmer. You can find him over on Twitter at Barney Farmer, all one word. Check out the links in the show notes for that. And if you do want to pick up a copy of either of his books, head over to wreckingballpress.com where you can buy direct from the publisher. Now, I know last episode I finished and said I was getting someone on to talk about running. That is still happening. We just had some schedule and time zone issues, but watch this space. That will be coming soon. If you do want to get notifications on when the next episode drops, then why not give that subscribe button a little tickle and follow us on social media at CouchKickerPod on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. And while you're at it, why not head over to couch-kicker.com where you can find all of the past episodes and get yourself inspired. I'll see you next time. Cheerio.